there. Welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Ann McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected. That's right. And specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode. Great. Let's get started. So today we're doing a tech talk about data science and the curious nature of language and the development of language. I'm very excited about this. My husband, Dr. Tim McFarland, and I will be questioning our guest, K.J. Price, about this topic. K.J., can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I've been a software engineer for the last 10 years, and more recently I've been working with data science after receiving a master's degree in data science from Southern Methodist University. So give us the short version of what data science is. Data science is a new field that has really taken off in the last decade or so. Its popularity has really made it well-known due to its subfield called machine learning, and machine learning is a form of artificial intelligence. KJ, a quick thing before we get started fully into the topic. We always ask question or a riddle, and our listeners listen for the answer later in the show. Do you have a riddle for us? Yeah, I do. Uh, because we are here to talk about language and faith, I thought it would be fun to use this riddle. Why did the medieval inhabitants of English call Mary, mother of Jesus, silly? And it's important to note that the people of England were Catholic and absolutely considered her holy. That's a really interesting question. <laughs> Curious, actually. Why did the medieval inhabitants of England call Mary, mother of Jesus, silly? And we'll get to the answer by the end of the show. One of the main reasons I picked this topic of language is because, of course, I'm a writer. I'm at my computer using language every day to convey my ideas. And as I do research, I come across things. And I came across this really intriguing article on language. The writer is writing for a science magazine. And she made a point about language and language evolution. Evolution and the idea that language, as it is used by humans to communicate, is uniquely human. It's a uniquely human ability. Our use of language includes a lot of complex rules and sounds and sentences and meanings. Uh, if animals truly had this type of language potential or language ability, then we would recognize it, but they don't. It doesn't seem like they've come up with anything with animals, even though they can communicate like dolphins and apes can communicate with sounds and signs. These instances don't develop further into the use of language as humans use language. So that using language to gather information into a broader body of knowledge about the world. So, KJ, we thought about having you on this show because you mentioned something to me a while back about apes and their limited ability to learn word meanings. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's really interesting. So there's been a lot of research with primates and language. We do know that chimps and gorillas have some capacity for language. They are apparently incapable of making the complex sounds necessary for speech, but they have been surprising with sign language. In fact, one really bright gorilla named Coco was able to understand a thousand or more signs. Wow. And still, yeah, and still their use of the language is limited. For example, they will never start up a, a conversation with another ape and rarely with another human. And they won't ask probing questions with the language they were given. They just sort of just respond or maybe ask for food and that sort of thing. But uh, they never get into discussions. 
and there's been some theories about this that we'll talk about later if we can talk about Chomsky and his theories. So basically, though, it goes back to kind of what this article was saying. That it seems that apes can use language. Like you said, though, it's a limited event. If they did use it like humans use language, over time, of the span of generations, they would develop history. And then, of course, the next dolphins and apes would learn that history and the, the ideas and the other things from the dolphins and apes of the past, and they would ask questions. But that's not what's going on. So if you think about it, our ability, though, to log our history, which brings benefit to future humans, it's because of our language ability. And every generation that comes along doesn't have to start from scratch regarding knowledge. Triggered my thought about this topic was that the magazine writer writing for the science magazine used the word paradox to explain that despite how unique the language use that humans use in language, there's not been any specific findings that explain why it's unique to humans. Some people have postulated that there's a unique human genome or something in our brain that's special, but nothing's been proved or, or discerned on that. And she asked, so why are we so capable in the matter of language? And But she found no conclusion. And the best answer she gave was that all the collective fields of knowledge on language that are studying human language indicate that humans' aptitude for language comes just from kind of like a platform of abilities. And some of these are abilities are ancient, and we share them with animals, but some are more modern. And so that apes and animals can respond to gestures and pointing, like you said. But the ability to do it varies like with their environment or how they've been exposed to humans. So our language structure and language evolution seems to be compiled by specific repeated use of words and ideas that uh, we convey through the generations and we sort of pass it on to the next generation and the next generation and we get the benefit of that. This is the inspiration for what I wanted to talk about and also I know you have some experience with uh, language and machine learning. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? What is machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. So machine learning first is a, uh, it is a form of of artificial intelligence. In fact, anytime you hear the word artificial intelligence used today, they're probably talking about machine learning in some aspect. And so what it is, is you take a data set, which could be like a CSV, an Excel file, or a bunch of images, and machine learning works by using these data sets and teaching a computer application to recognize patterns in the data so that the machine can perform tasks automatically where the task used to have to be done manually. So an easy example is say that you would like to be able to distinguish between a cat or a dog in any image. You can take a few hundred examples of images that contain cats and other images that contain dogs and then train a machine learning model to recognize the difference. Now you do not need anyone to manually look through each image and label them as cat or dog as a computer can label hundreds of these images in just a couple seconds. So isn't machine learning already going on when we use Siri? I mean, Siri is talking back to us when I ask it a question. What's the difference between what Siri does and what others might be trying to do with machine learning and language? Yeah, so Siri most definitely uses machine learning to handle its requests from Apple users. Siri actually touches into a field of data science called natural language processing, which is kind of a separate field from machine learning, but there's a lot of overlap. And specifically, Siri uses natural language understanding to take the user's request. Then it finds the answer using a search engine and then responds to the user using machine learning again. This time, its response is done using natural language generation to create a response that any user could understand just by listening to Siri. So how does your background bring insight into languages? So one really cool thing that we can do with machine learning and data science is natural language processing, as we discussed about Siri. 
it's a really exciting field right now. In fact, I would say it is a bit of a holy grail to be able to have computers and humans communicate using human language. Can you give us some examples of like a machine learning language model? Yeah. So one example can be as simple as teaching a learning model, a machine learning model to tell if a body of text represents a positive attitude or a negative attitude. For example, you get analyzed published articles and see if they are in favor or against a political party. This is called sentiment analysis, where we can decide the general sentiment of a body of text. Wow. There are many... It's very, very common uh, today. And there are many other ways that machine learning can be used in natural language. For example, IBM's Watson uh, can understand the English with very high proficiency. Another example is Google Translate. And these all use machine learning for natural language understanding and natural language generation. Interestingly, uh, the same machine learning models which do really well in handling images like the dog and cats that we talked about earlier, these same algorithms work really well with natural languages, language understanding too. This makes data science a particularly exciting field right now as natural language and image patterns have been really difficult for a computer to make any sense of. Yet these are things that are really easy for humans to deal with. Yeah. I think you mentioned the difficulty of self-driving cars and their ability to recognize things like a red garbage bag versus a child dressed in red clothes. Yeah, absolutely. So for a car to be self-driving, it would need to be able to recognize any obstruction on the road. It would be really important to know if the car is about to hit something. But it is really hard for a machine to tell the subtle difference between some objects. Is the object a harmless, empty trash bag floating in the air? Or is it another car far from the distance? Or is it even a human? And it's really important for a machine to get right. Not only to make sure it stops before it hits something, but it's also important that the car doesn't slam the brakes at 70 miles per hour to avoid a floating bag. Both errors could result in harm to the car or the human passengers. And not only is it really important, but it is really difficult for a machine to do as well as humans. So what does the term natural language processing mean? So when we say natural language, that's just another way of saying a human language, but it's more specific natural language is a human language that was created well naturally i guess that it would be worth it to discuss what is not a natural language so there are some languages that are created in a lab you could say a few of these synthetic languages would be klingon from star trek elvish from J.R. token and also programming languages natural languages are languages that evolved over time naturally for the purpose of humans to be able to communicate with each other and these natural languages include English, German, Spanish, and most spoken languages. And also American Sign Language, or ASL, is a natural language. Sign language was actually created naturally. In France, people with hearing disabilities found a way to communicate with each other. They had invented a bona fide language. Natural language processing is just saying that a computer is able to do something with a real natural human language. Wow, that's so interesting. So tell us about the project you've worked on with that that relate to natural language processing. One really fun project was something that I worked on for my thesis during my graduate degree. My team decided to try to have a computer understand sign language. And this has been tried many times before. Most notably are the use of haptic gloves to recognize the exact positions of the hands and fingers and then decide the correct sign language related to the orientation of the hands. But we found that with machine learning, we can do the same thing with image recognition without use of a haptic glove. And at first we wanted the Mercedes Benz of sign language. We wanted to have all the bells and whistles. <laughs> and we wanted a model to understand and translate full sentences, if you will, from American Sign Language, ASL, into English. 
When we first got started, I knew nothing about ASL and thought this could just be a direct translation. It was actually incredibly difficult to do. What are some of the challenges you faced? <laughs> well, in the first couple of months of working with ASL, we quickly started to understand that we were way over our heads. <laughs> we, came, we came to understand that ASL is absolutely nothing like English, uh, which was surprising to me. I thought American Sign Language, I thought it would be like English. But in particular, the big difference is the grammar between the languages are completely different. I think that most people are most excited about how different words are between different languages or like the etymology of words. But linguists, when they study languages and the differences, they're actually more interested in grammatical differences or the syntax of a language. Wow. And you, could, you can really tell how similar a language is to another language based on the grammar or how the language structure its words or symbols to make a complete thought. So in other words, we're kind of interested if I'm going to try to learn another language, I want to know what the word for plate is, what the word for fork is. So that's word for word, but you're saying that it's the grammar that's more complicated and more interesting. Yeah, I'd say actually the fingerprint of a language would be its its syntax or its grammar. And then the, the words uh, can be pulled from many other languages, for example, and maybe not be unique. But usually the, the syntax and grammar is unique in a language. I had not realized this at the time, and we were quickly overwhelmed as we realized how different English is from ASL. And there's dozens of examples I give, but just one is, in English you might say, I am going to the store. But in ASL, you would probably sign this as, me store go, or me go store. And you can tell right away there is no distinction between the pronoun I and me in ASL. Also, articles like the are not used in ESL. You just say me, store, go. Also, the subject in this case, store, can be placed all around the sentence that the signer is presenting. You can't do that in English. So um, what would it take to fully translate ASL into English? Wow. So being able to switch the grammar is just one tiny part of fully translating the language. Once you get past syntax or grammar, we really care about the semantics of a language or the real underlying meaning of the phrase. And this is a monumental task for any language. And I think this is particularly true for ASL. You were doing this project uh, with ASL. What was the purpose? Specifically, it was using machine learning, in particular, a deep learning machine learning algorithm to be able to automatically translate signs from images. That was the original underlying task. Okay. And we hope to get really far with it. So you were talking about syntax and grammar, being able to switch the grammar. Yeah, moving past that, we're looking at semantics, the real underlying meaning of the phrase. For example, we talked about sentiment analysis. Uh, what is the sentiment of, of a, a body of text? If I have the phrase in English, Jim Carrey had an incredible performance. We would say that this is a positive sentiment. He had an incredible performance. But if we compare this with Jim Carrey had an incredibly weak performance. It's obvious that this now negative sentiment. Both phrases use the word incredible. In the first example, it was an adjective. In the second, it was an adverb. Jim Carrey had an incredibly weak performance. It's really hard just to be able to pick out a word and to be able to say, is this a positive or negative sentence? And it's really important to get that right when you translate fully from one language to another. It's very subtle, but really important we get it correct. In another example is the sentence, Jim Carrey's performance as his character sat next to his weak and dying mother was a powerful example of an artist at work. Now the word weak has absolutely nothing to do with the sentiment of the phrase. And the sentiment is just one very small piece of correctly translating the true meaning of a sentence. 
Another piece of the puzzle for understanding the semantics of a language is knowing the character in each phrase. For example, in English, you can say, Sally gave Joe an apple, which made him really happy. Who was him in the phrase? Sally gave Joe an apple, which made him really happy. Well, him was Joe, of course. In English, we can kind of cheat because our pronouns are gender specific. Joe is a name typically given to males. So because we only have one male character in the phrase, the masculine program, pronoun must be referring to Joe. Again, look at the sentence. Sally gave Joe an apple, which made him really happy. So him is obviously Joe. But in ASL, you don't have gender-specific nouns. You don't even have people-specific nouns. You just use it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you just use it for pronouns, except if you're talking about uh, me or you, because uh, you would point at yourself or point at you. And so an ASL phrase, like again, looking at Sally gave Joe an apple, which made him really happy. In ASL, this would be signed something as Joe, Sally, apple, give, past. It happened, happy, past. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just completely different, right? It's yeah. just absolutely different. And now that sounds really, really cryptic to us. And notice that they actually use a sign to make verbs past tense. They actually sign past, and it automatically makes the sentence past tense. And it's really interesting having to sign past completely changes the phrase. So if I can say the anglicized, if I can anglicize the ASL phrase from earlier, Joe gave Sally the apple, it was happy. That's if I just make it a little bit simpler. Uh, the it, it was happy, could refer to Joe, Sally, or the apple. This is really important to get right if we're going to translate the full sentence back and forth from ASL into English. Wow, uh, what a what, monumental task, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so it, just getting started with this, we had no idea. And so the algorithm to translate it into Joe would have to be incredibly complex to know that this exchange would have the highest probability to make Joe happy. And this really shows how far Watson and Google Translate have come in recent years and the fact that they are doing a decent job at piecing together semantics of a sentence. And this is not a trivial task, and it shows why there's still not an application that does a great job at translating ASL. And I think first because there are a few people who rely on sign language. Estimates range from 1% to 3% of a population require sign language. And also sign, language, uh, sign languages are incredibly different from spoken languages. So how far did you get with your project? Okay, so it turned out that just being able to translate a single sign into its English equivalent was really difficult, and that is as, as far as we got. We ended up training a model using 30,000 images of ASL signs into their English word equivalents. Wow. We weren't even close to getting into syntax or semantics. What we were able to get is 100% accuracy and precision on matching an individual sign to the English word. So we never got it wrong. Our machine uh, learning model was perfect. That's amazing. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's a bit technical, but for people that care, we got these metrics off the unseen testing data to know that our model generalizes well to data that it hasn't even seen yet. Cool. Uh, yeah, we were very excited about it. And even doing the most simple task of recognizing single signs, and that even turned out to be really difficult. For example, the sign for the letter I is made by just putting your pinky up in the air. The letter J is the exact same as the letter I, except it has a little flick of the wrist. It requires movement. And this makes our machine learning tasks much more difficult. We couldn't just look at individual images to create a sign. 
Now the sequence of the images was really important. We have the machine learning model needs to be able to distinguish that there's actually a hand moving through the air to and that creates J, which is different than I. Other considerations to sign language that not all hands are the same. For hands and men are sh differently shaped than hands and females. And it's also hands change shape over time. A baby's hand is a lot different than an elderly person's hand. And the data set we use uh, was of a man. And so the machine learning algorithm could recognize the signs I was performing pretty easily while my partner in the project, well, she was not able to get the same results for the simple fact the machine learning model could not recognize her hand as well. And this is even more pronounced for different skin tones. Wow. Overall, we, we're really proud of what we achieved. It took a lot of work and we published the paper, which will hopefully help people to get where we got pretty easily. And we also documented some of the complexities of ASL, which we just talked about. Wow, that's, that is so fascinating and a lot of work. You have a fascination or you've had sort of a hobby of language, studying languages, um, and so how they've evolved, and, and that's a particular field. I know that we've talked to you before and you were interested in that. In your estimation, how has the understanding of language changed over the years? Yeah, so first I would definitely say it is a hobby of mine. I get a lot of enjoyment by understanding it and learning a bit more about languages. Yeah, it appears the understanding of language has definitely changed over the years. Since we have been able to tie the understanding of language with something going on in the brain, well, we first started with the idea of tabula rosa from John Locke. He's a philosopher in the 17th century. Tabula rosa, it's Latin for blank slate or a blank tab a tablet. So the idea was that at birth, our brains had nothing going on there besides basic cognitive functions, just a blank slate. We learned everything by observing around us. And eventually, language was printed in our brain by just observing others talking. So this is the, the theory by John Locke of tabula rosa. And then other theories came about. A leading theory was that our language is inherited by the culture we were born into. They're saying it's genetic. So French people are genetically disposed to have language to have a language that is more Latin than Germanic. Theories changed until there have, has been a really cool theory by Noam Chomsky. So Chomsky has been called the father of modern linguistics. He's still alive today and he's a brilliant guy and his ideas are truly revolutionary. He believes that we are actually all the same when born as far as languages are concerned with the predisposition to understand any languages we come across. So one of the ideas that prevailed before Chomsky is that humans just mimic others around them and our language is built by mimicking phrases and ideas that we have heard in the past. Chomsky's theory, uh, which is known as universal grammar, is, is that a human does not just mimic language, but that we already have an understanding of language even at birth. Our ability to learn sentences is not just mimicry, but we can create nearly infinite combinations of words to represent any idea we can imagine. And a fun example of this, looking at the argument of, do we have this universal grammar? Can we build sentences by just using patterns? So a fun example of how humans have this natural understanding of languages is when you hear a young child begin to understand past tense in English. English is not the most difficult language, except when it comes to making verbs past tense. For example, walk is walked, past tense, right? right. Talk is talked, right. jump is jumped. So we just have to add ed suffix and boom, we get the past tense, right? <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, it actually gets crazy because run, past tense of that is ran, swim, swam, eat, ate, think, thought. 
And there really is no pattern to it at all. You know, the easiest one to, to get out is just the ED. Yeah. Uh, but I remember when my son started talking and working with past tense. Whenever he wanted to talk about something that had happened, he used the ED suffix for all verbs. For example, he might say, when we go to the store. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Now that you say I've had fives, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And he has never heard anyone say goad. So he wasn't mimicking anyone, yeah. but he was able to see a pattern that worked with a lot of past tense verbs. He thought he could just add ed to the end of a verb, and that should work at least some of the time. And that is an example of how powerfully our brains work at understanding patterns, especially in language. Okay. So uh, more about Chomsky, he believes that what makes humans different from the rest of the animal kingdom is most profound in our understanding of language. Chomsky's theory suggests that we do actually think in our language. In other words, as we go about our day and solve problems, we do it with an internal voice, with its own vocabulary and grammar. And this is completely unique and does not seem to exist in any other animals. Yeah, so going back to the idea of natural language processing to tie it all up, it is not just how well humans are able to understand language, but how incredibly efficient our brains can process a language. It is pretty clear that Watson probably understands English better than I do, at least. However, Watson is a massive computer that requires enough energy to power an office complex. But our brains can do almost as well as Watson, but with less energy than is needed to power a light bulb. As far as languages, images, and pattern rec recognition is concerned, the human brain is still reigning champion, among other machines. Wow, yes it is. <laughs> <laughs> that is really interesting to notice that humans can recognize and then predict patterns. Absolutely. We're great at predicting patterns. So how have languages changed over time? Well, I, I think that we should first categorize languages as linguistics do before we move forward. Okay, what do you mean, categorize language as linguistics do? Yeah, so <clears throat> there are some similarities between languages. We are probably familiar with some Latin languages such as French, Spanish, Italian, etc. And linguistics, linguistics like to categorize languages by how similar they are and put them into language families. Since these languages I just mentioned derive from the language the Romans spoke, we can say that these are Latin languages as the Romans spoke Latin. Categorizing languages into these families make a lot of sense. It makes it really easy to compare and contrast languages. So what are some other language families? So we're speaking English now, which is part of the Proto-Indo-European family of languages. And that is really interesting. The Indo actually represents India. As linguistics understand it today, European languages and Indian languages have a similar lineage or root in some ancestral language. And so at some point we can theorize that there was one language that everyone spoke in Europe and India, and then people spread around the continent sharing this language and allowing it to evolve over time based on regional dialects until we finally see the distinct language, which we really, which is really are quite different from each other today. One really interesting thought experiment is to imagine a single language, the original language that everyone spoke. Looking at all the language families, was there a single language which nomadic people took around, which evolved into all the families we have seen today? It's a lot of fun to think about, and this concept has received a lot of attention over the years. In fact, articles have been written claiming to have found some words which are common throughout all language families and must point back to a root language. Linguistic, linguistics tend to think that it would be impractical to trace languages to a single source, though, because of how quickly languages evolve. 
when you look at how different German is from Portuguese, for example, and these are relatives, these languages are cousins, most linguistics believe that the original language, if there was one, was probably too diluted to find any root words that have, been, that have survived. It's still a lot of fun to think about, though. So what are some other language families? So there are other language families, for sure. In the Middle East, one notable family is the Semitic language family. Some languages of this family that you might recognize are Hebrew, Aramaic, and Arabic. You know, it's a bit ironic how much conflict has gone on between people that speak these different languages, considering how closely similar these languages are. The alphabet, syntax, and vocabulary are incredibly similar between Arabic and Hebrew, especially. Then when you go from the Middle East to the Far East, you actually have several language families there. It is a bit hard for our Indo-European ears to discern, but some Asian languages are very different from each other. Some are as different from each other as English is from Chinese languages. Wow. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, linguists are more interested in the syntax of a language than the vocabulary. In this, we actually find that English is closer to some East Asian languages than English is with our European language cousins. Wow. Yeah, so when I say, I give you, that is using the subject-verb-object form of building a sentence. I give you. I is the subject, give is the verb, and you, you are the object. This format for building a language is almost unheard of in European languages, but is used 99% of the time in English, and is actually quite common in East Asian languages. So we would be surprised to think about it, but from a linguist point of view, English has more in common with Mandarin, a Chinese dialect, than Mandarin has in common with Japanese. Mandarin, of course, has many more syntactic nuances. For instance, in Mandarin, you must always specify a unit involved with a noun you, that you are doing something with. In Mandarin, you don't take a straw, you take a stick of straw. And we do a similar thing in English. You don't say, usually say, I want milk. You want to say, I want a glass of milk. You qualify our nouns sometimes. But in Mandarin, this is always required for a noun that you are doing something with. So syntax matters a lot, and it's really different between East Asian languages and Proto-European languages. So, KJ, if Chinese and English are similar, how can the sounds be so different? That's a great question, and that's definitely true. They are very different. Indo-European languages from East Asian languages, especially those around China, and a very close neighbor to China is Vietnamese, and we were in Vietnam last year, and I had to definitely brush up on some Vietnamese. And one thing that I found really difficult being a Western speaker, how they use tones. So, for example, the word P-H-O, you can say pho, or you can say pho, or you can say pho, or you can say and it's all, they're all spelled the same. They're P-H-O. Based off of the tonal inflection marks on them, you actually pronounce them differently. So if you want to order that yummy Vietnamese soup, you say pho. Whereas if you're asking what street to go down, you say pho. And so, yeah, the tones are really interesting. In English, we actually use tones. They actually change the meaning of a sentence. That is a cat. But if I change the tone of the last word, I can say, that is a cat, turns it into a question. We have the ability to do that. Vietnamese actually can't do that. They can't turn a regular sentence into a question because the tone is built into the language and it actually changes the meaning of a word. To make the different tones, do they do something different with their tongue or with their larynx or do you know? It's actually more of a guttural sound, I guess, in the back of your throat usually. The difference is between a O and a U. You know, if you can kind of move your mouth to make that sound, sound kind of changes in the back of your mouth as you do that O. 
you, you can kind of feel the difference of that. They're only the vowels that change. So how has the English language changed over time, though? Yeah, so we can think of the Indo-European family of languages, and there's actually three branches from this Indo-European branch, and then there's sub-branches still. For Europe, there's probably three sub-branches. There's Latin, Germanic, and Slavic. Most European languages fit snugly in one of those, except for a couple of languages, which are really unique. One of them is English, which linguists call a bastard language, and the fact that its parent language is not really easy to distinguish. And it makes me actually, I get really geeked out about thinking about English. It's just so unique. And I think that language has its estranged roots because of its unique formulation through England being conquered several times and adopting pieces from the conquering languages. I think we might be most familiar with William the Conqueror, who in 1066 came from Normandy, France. He conquered England and brought the French language with him. This changed English in many ways. We can see the effects through many words like pants, table, plants, cuisine, chivalry, etc. And all these words came from French. But before French made its way to England, there were several other notable conquests. While the Roman Empire, which had conquered England, was crumbling around the 4th and 5th centuries, people from lowland Germany came to England and completely changed the language. So there was the three main people groups who came to England during this time, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. The Angles and Saxons were the most popular, and you've probably heard a lot about them, sometimes referred as their own ethnicity as Anglo-Saxon. In fact, we get the word England from Angoland, oh, wow. showing its roots with Angles after the conquest. Literally was the Angles land after the conquest. That's so cool. And before the Anglo-Saxon conquest, the entirety of the British islands spoke a similar Britonic language. So it had its own unique language family for the whole island of Britain and in Ireland. It was very similar. And we can still see this original Britonic family language in Welsh, Gaelic, and Cornish, languages that exist on the fringes of the British uh, island. But for the majority of people living in what we now call England, they now begin to speak a German hybrid of their original language from the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. In fact, this new language actually became much more similar to German than having similarities to its Britonic root. And there are hardly any similars today between modern English and modern Gaelic, for example. I mean, they're completely different, although they started at the being the same language. It's really hard to believe. Hundreds of years went by, and the conquerors, the Angles, Saxons, and Jews, they became the natives of the land. And then they themselves began to be conquered during the 8th century by the Vikings from Denmark and other Nordic nations. And this, no doubt, had a lasting impression on the new English language as well. So it's sort of interesting, geography may play something into this, that England and that area is isolated, being offset as a separate land by water mass. Absolutely. But they were conquered, and so they were different, but they could be very influenced. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I, I think because they were so separate from the mainland uh, European continent, I think they had a false sense of security, which we see over and over again in England. They didn't have a strong central government, for example, and uh, so when the, the Vikings came, they were just unprepared for it because they weren't used to constantly fighting with their neighbors because they were, ha were separated by the, by the river, as you'd call it. So what do experts say is the evolution of our current modern English language? 
After William arrived in 1066, there was an established English language already. This is what we would have called Old English, and it changed dramatically over the following uh, centuries. An example of Old English literature is Beowulf. Today, we couldn't understand any of the original Beowulf. Beowulf would have to be translated into English today because the language changed so much from Old English to Modern English. In fact, the story of Beowulf, it's interesting, it actually comes from the legends that the Anglo-Saxons brought to England. So the story of Beowulf didn't even take place on English soil, but on the European continent before the Anglo-Saxons came to England. And Beowulf was written sometime before William the Conqueror, but the exact date is unknown, but some guess somewhere in the 9th century. Compare Beowulf to Canterbury's Tale and other books by Chaucer in the 14th century, and you would not believe these two books are written in the same language. Even though they are both written in English, and it's just a, a bit over 500 years, you can see how much 500 years does to a language. Interestingly, the English language has changed in some extent from Chaucer to modern English, which has a difference of another 500 years or so. However, the difference between us and Chaucer, and then between Chaucer and Beowulf, the change was just much more significant between Chaucer and Beowulf. Why does that occur, that the language change has slowed? Yeah, so in the last 500 years, uh, English has shown change, right, but more slowly. And this is actually similar to the progression of most modern languages. You see languages change really fast, naturally. It is the introduction of a literate population that drastically slows language down. As the English population became more literate, they had a reference of previous literature. They had dictionaries. Because these tools existed, and it became more common for people to use these tools, it became much harder for the English language to change. So it was easier for generation to continue to use the same words as the previous generation. This is really interesting, of course, because of literature uh, slowing down the language evolution since I'm writing. So there's so many things that we're cautioned to do as we write. For today's readers, and we have to speed things up, our attention spans today are shorter. We've been told not to depend on details that can age the story. So we want our readers to identify with our story, but not have something that's too related to our current culture. There's just all kinds of interesting things that we have to do when we're writing for literature today. And that's a fun statement to hear you say that we're actually slow down a change in language because the society becomes more literate. Maybe, yeah, and you, you are part of the problem. There, there you go, there. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So maybe depending on the literature that we, we have available in another 500 years, we will have a completely different English uh, going on. I know that we have different story structure, I guess is what I'm saying. There's, we're wired for a good story, but with the way we pattern that story out changes in our culture. So this is really fascinating. Thank you, KJ, for sharing your knowledge and insight. This has certainly been a fascinating, interesting topic regarding language and data science. And we don't want to forget, though, uh, you gave us a, a riddle. So tell us about why medieval English people called Mary silly. Yeah. In fact, the medieval Catholics did, in fact, call the Holy Mother silly. The reason for this is due to the fact that the meaning of the word silly had changed throughout the centuries. The original meaning of the word silly was beautiful, holy, or set apart. And there are a few etymological paths that could have taken the word silly from meaning holy to what we now know of the word. One of these paths goes as follows. The word silly started taking on a slightly different connotation from holy when it started to be used to refer to isolated monks in their unique ways. And then later the word silly would be used for any remote people and how they do things differently. Then finally, we have our word silly as we know it today, which stands to mean anything odd or peculiar. 
So it's kind of the idea, the, the set apart, the, the word silly lost the kind of beautiful, holy connotation and stuck with the set apart thing. Was the, yeah, the peculiar. absolutely. So those are different ideas as to why at the one time they would have referred to a very holy reverence to Mother Mary as silly. And now, of course, that would never be the case. So KJ, you know, our podcast is called uh, Paradox of I, and our goal is to talk about these unexpected stories and events in the STEM fields. Between your data science and the language, you kind of actually touched on, on two fields. And in a parallel vein, we uh, also ask a question of our our guest at the end regarding faith, because the notion of faith itself is a paradox, believing in something that is unseen. So tell me, are you a person of faith? I am, absolutely. What do you find satisfying about your faith? Well, I enjoy seeing the modern understandings of scripture, and I have a lot of fun reading C.S. Lewis and other more recent authors who have really interesting ways of looking at scriptures. There's a lot to unpack in the Bible. and So is there something you find unsatisfying about your faith? Well, I think you could spend a lifetime unpacking the Bible and still find that there are stones left unturned. And faith, at the end of the day, is something that you can't apply the scientific method to. At the end of the day, it requires faith, uh, which I would say is fine to be a scientist who has faith. And I'd even go to say that some of the bravest ideas originated from scientists and inventors uh, had faith in some idea that they saw all the way through. Oh, that's interesting. So they used the paradox of faith in their theory or in what they were working on to get to the end point of it. Absolutely. So do you have an early memory or understanding of when you came regarding your faith or the practice of your faith that you'd like to share? Yeah. So I would say that I'm in the third chapter of my faith. I accepted Christ at the age of seven, which I'd say is my first chapter. And then in my early twenties, I felt like I had a new understanding of what it meant. And I renewed my faith again. Uh, and I had a lot of energy back then and a lot of zeal to learn more and share the gospel. And I traveled to Africa as a missionary and learned a lot from some amazing people there and was able to share the gospel too. It was one of those real growing times in my life. And then now in this third chapter, I have kids and things are a bit different. And I'm trying to figure out how I fit in in it all. Uh, like with language, I guess there is a natural evolution within each of us for our own spiritual walk. Well, thank you again, KJ, for being willing to visit with us. We really appreciate it, and good luck in your future work projects with Data Science. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. It's really, really fascinating. I'm sitting here as a writer, and I'm just in awe. I'm, I'm playing around with language all the time, but I, I didn't know all this stuff at all. And thanks to our listeners. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review or suggestion for a topic of discussion in the STEM fields. Join us again soon as we talk about unexpected stories and visit our website at www.paradoxifi.com. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-F-I.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple and most podcast platforms. Visit our webpage to find the links. <laughs>